Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. So our guest today, we met and have a kind of bizarre connection. I'll let him explain because I think it's it's kind of funny. But Cameron Harold is, I've actually never met him in person, even though he lives in Vancouver, and I will blame the pandemic on that one. And his busy travel schedule, he's always in various exotic places as a speaker. He's actually known as the CEO Whisperer. He's the founder of the COO Alliance, author of five business books, including Vivid Vision, and the founder of the Invest in Your Leaders course. He's been paid to speak in all seven continents, including Antarctica, and is the former COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which was ranked the number two company to work for in all of Canada, and twice ranked number one to work for in BC. It even became a case study at the Harvard Business School. He's coached dozens of real companies globally and is known for creating world-class company cultures. The publisher of Forbes magazine, Forbes magazine, all comes full circle, said Cameron Harold is the best speaker I've ever heard. Cameron has likely said this quote on stages hundreds of times and now regrets it. Quote, to build an amazing company, it has to be a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. It has to be in the zone of a cult. End quote. He joins us today to talk about how and when company culture goes too far and becomes culty and what makes a company culture a healthy one. Without further ado, Cameron Harold. Good morning, Cameron. How are you? Good. How are you? Good to see you guys. Good to see you too. It's taken a while for us to lock down this conversation, but I'm so glad that we did because obviously there's lots to talk about. For sure. Yeah, this one was a few months in the making, right? Yes. I actually learned about Sarah before the vow even came out. Christopher Bennett and I worked together 20 years ago back at Got Junk. And Sarah and I were both Uh, on his podcast when he was running the Vancouver Film School. You might want to tell this part. What is our other connection other than the fabulous Christopher Bennett? So Edgar Boone and I, uh, Edgar was a part of ESP, which became Nexium, I guess. He opened up Mexico. Yeah. So I met Edgar in 2007 at a program that the Entrepreneurs Organization hosts at MIT. And I've taught there for 15 years. And Edgar and I were in the same class for three years at this MIT EO program. So I knew Edgar well. He actually brought me down to speak in Monterey. I spoke in the Mexico City chapter for EO. When this whole, the vow kind of came on, I was like totally engrossed and watching. And then all of a sudden I saw this sign pop up with his name on a parking spot. I'm like, what the fuck? And I had to go in and check to see if it was him. And then all of a sudden he appeared on on the screen and I just kind of froze. It was a little too close to home. Did you not know Edgar was part of ESP. We called it ESP then. We didn't call it Nexium. Yeah. So I did know he was a part of ESP and I knew what ESP kind of stood for. And it's interesting, my ex-wife around 2017 did a landmark forum and she walked out at the end of the first day saying, you know, this is bullshit. I hate all this, blah, blah, blah. I don't think she could go introspective on it. And she ended up talking about wanting to look at this ESP program that she'd heard about. And I think she'd actually had heard about it through kind of some of the EO members that we we knew from Mexico Uh as well. 
So we were very close. For the audience that doesn't know, EO is Entrepreneurs Organization. Organization. Yeah. It's a network of entrepreneurs all over the world. And he would have tapped into that pretty strong as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember talking to him about it. He came down and was running the New York City Center while I was there for a lot of it. And so Edgar and I worked together, you know, here and there in New York. He was a field trainer. Great guy. Great guy. We were, I mean, we, we used to, we used to be really close, I would say. And I'm devastated that we haven't spoken since, since shit hit the fan. I sent him a message three days ago or four days ago telling him I was back on the podcast with you guys and haven't heard anything yet. You probably won't. You probably won't. Well, we've heard back and forth from each other. This might close the door a little bit, but I'm going to still try to keep the friendship going. Yeah. Well, he's a good guy. And I think, you know, like all of us, we had to reconcile something. If you don't reconcile it, you're not willing to. It's going to be a, a longer and more arduous journey, I think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that's our connection. But also when we were in Nexium, he was touted as like, at least the story we were told is that he used to be, they called him like the Tony Robbins of Mexico. And he was running personal development seminars. And then when he came and did ESP, he said, the rumor is it has it that he would said to Nancy, this is either a big piece of shit or it's the best thing in the world. And by the end of his five day, he's like, this is the best thing in the world and I'm going to bring it to Mexico. And so he was sort of like the head sales, we called it a field trainer for Mexico. And everyone that's in Mexico is there because essentially because of him. Sure. And sure. so I had heard at the time, like the, the numbers that was touted was that like, he was making like $75,000 a month because of the MLM structure of it. He recruited so many people, recruited so many people, and he was getting commissions from all those people. It's hard to walk away from that kind of income and also to admit later, wow, you know, I made a lot of money off the backs of this pervert. I feel like it's harder to go, wow, I was wrong. Yeah, both. Yeah. yeah. Knowing Edgar, I don't think him walking away from money and that thing would be his internal. No. I think no, no. it's more of like, recognizing you you backed the wrong wrong horse so wait a minute cameron since 2007 you've been in the purview of edgar and sarah kind of because you're in vancouver and you never got the pitch i've also dodged landmark and chip wilson who started lululemon and i are friends and a bunch of his very close kind of peers and i are friends and i've dodged uh, i've wanted to get involved because I've wanted to do this growth, but now I'm terrified. Oh, no. We're going to do a whole separate episode on it and other LGATs, large group awareness trainings, in a separate episode. But that is actually one of the things we wanted to talk about today is how these corporations use LGATs or you'd call it like a a business seminar Mm -hmm. as part of the company culture. But we're going to get into that before we do. Maybe you want to start with the first. So, yeah, I guess one of the things that we were thinking about in uh, having this conversation was, is having kind of a standard. Are you familiar with Stephen Hassan's bite model? I think you've talked about him on the podcast. I've talked about I've listened it. every episode. It, so yes. He brought it together on the shoulders of some other people, but in essence, it's like when groups try to control your behavior, B, eyes information, when they try to influence the information and access their information that you have. And then the thoughts, they try to influence your thoughts encourage, you know, what's positive and negative thoughts are shut down. And then the emotion, fear and gaslighting yourself. So they have have a grasp on your emotions. So in essence, that's how they flex their control. There's a spectrum of that, just to clarify. Like most people have come to terms with the fact that like what is a cult is very nebulous. And we use the bite model to say like the more of those things that they do, the more destructive it is and the less they do, it's the less destructive. And for example, like if you can leave and not be shunned, 
and you can like, you know, come and go as you please, that's less of a cult and more of a, you know, there might be some other aspects that make it culty, but it's not destructive per se. So it's a spectrum for analysis just to back that up, yeah. right? No, it's funny. I'm rolling some past companies through my head now and, and kind of going on the B part, like where were we? Well, that's the thing. When does it be, I mean, we want to get into when it becomes bad because yeah. if you're trying to build something, behavior, and it goes from, as you well know, in corporate settings to sports teams, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have you know, a sports team bought into the coach's philosophy, if you will. Right. And if they're not, and their behavior is contrary to what the inertia of the team is, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Making those distinctions is important. You know, our structure with survivors is how did you get in? Like what hooked you? How did you get out? You know, what were the red flags along the way? How did you wake up? And how are you healing? Which is a different context for you because mm. you're not a survivor per se, but you did come to me with like, okay, I used to <laughs> say that you need to have, and we said this already in the intro, but you need to have your your company in the, in the line of a cult and you don't do that anymore. So can you take us back a little bit? Can you give us like a little bit of your history? What led you up to the point that you realize that you're not going to say that anymore just to bring our audience up to speed with who you are? Yeah, for sure. So I, I was groomed as an entrepreneur, grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. I did a uh, a talk that's on the main TED website about raising entrepreneurial kids. So all I ever knew was being entrepreneurial or, or being an entrepreneur. When I was 20, so I, I, you know, normal kind of jobs and entrepreneurial ventures. When I was 20, I got involved in a company called College Pro Painters. And College Pro went on to become the world's largest residential house painting company. And the CEO and founder of College Pro, who I'm still in touch with today, Greg Clark, uh, used to say, and I remember hearing it in 1986 when I got involved, to build an amazing company, it has to be a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. And it has to be in the zone of a cult. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Like I got, like for me, it was like, that's amazing. I get it. Like cult, culture, that's so cool. And I was 20 and I didn't understand what the bad parts of a cult were. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just, I just thought that anything that we could borrow from cults or religions or groups was really cool. In fact, in in 1998, I actually went to an Amway session, no desire to ever get involved in Amway, just to watch a 5,000 person session being run. I was so blown away that by the end of the session, I was standing talking to the CEO of Amway International because I was so blown. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened to me? Like, I just got pulled in again. And then leaving there, built another company with Boyd Auto Body left there after about four years and and came on as the 14th employee at a company that we built out called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We built that out to 3,100 employees in six years. We were on Oprah, lots of press, and we ranked two years in a row as the number one company to work for in British Columbia. My final or second last year, number two in all of Canada to work for. So we had this amazing, strong culture. And then since then, coached lots of companies and coached a lot of companies who have gone on to build fantastic cultures. I coached Nurse Next Door, who went on to be number one in BC, two companies that went on to be number one in Australia, one that is number two on Glassdoor, another number 12 on Glassdoor, blah, blah, blah. I've been paid to speak in 26 countries about building culture. And I've used that phrase a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion until I start, saw the vow. And now every time it starts coming out of my mouth, it makes me sick. And I'm and I'm scared of where or did we go too far? Mm. Sarah, I reached out to you even before, way before talking about the podcast, before you started your podcast, I actually wanted to hire you to come yes, and work for one of my companies because yeah. I'm like, you're such a great recruiter. We have this group <laughs> and I could bring you into the group and you'd be an amazing recruiter. Like, 
as long as we could get really close but never cross that line, that's kind of where I am is toggling, I think. It's fascinating. You're the perfect person to talk to about this because the people who I think do run corporations that are unhealthily culty or toxic, whatever you want to call it, wouldn't be able to come on this podcast and have an honest conversation. Right. I think when you say you feel sick saying it, I think that's a good indication if you go like, hey, that's not right. I think it's also an indication of you're the type of person that's not going to go down the road of abusing the powers that you have as a result. So I don't think I ever abuse them cognizantly, but right. I'm curious whether we abuse them without knowing, thinking that what we were doing was building an amazing culture. And then now looking back through a different lens going like, was that okay? Like like when we really push core values constantly and you mention core values in every meeting and you celebrate core values and you high five on core values and you talk about core values in daily huddle, is that culty or is that just a really good company? Well, let's figure it out. Right? Let's figure it out right now on this podcast. These are the questions. I mean, I think they're, oh, this is so interesting. So interesting. Before you woke up, what were some of the things you said you should have before you had that recognition that that wasn't a good thing? So one very early thing in my career where I I did something for the company and then was gaslit and I didn't understand it until the vow. So I didn't understand. I felt bad at the time and I was pissed off at the time, but I didn't understand it until 20 years later. Nippy, you'll probably identify with this. 1994, and it was the Toronto Blue Jays were in game seven of the World Series And the College Pro International President's Dinner was on the same night as Game 7. My dad had four tickets for Game 7. And I said, I can't go to the game. This would be 93. 93. And I said, I can't go to the game because if I go to the game, then I'm going to miss the President's Dinner. So I gave my ticket to my uncle. I went to the President's Dinner. That night at the dinner, I was talking to the CEO and I said, told him what I did. And he goes, dude, you're a fucking idiot. Like I totally would have gone to the game. I was only 26 years old. Like I didn't know if he was serious or or what was going on. I did something that I didn't want to do for the good of the company because I didn't want to mm. be shunned. And then it felt like I had done the wrong thing. And anyway, so that was that was an experience that, and I love College Pro. I still talk about College Pro Painters to this day. Like amazing company. Mm. I, I learned everything from it. We then, when we were building 1-800-GOT-CHUNK, on purpose did stuff to create an amazing culture. Like I wanted to create a magnet for employees. So everyone wore branded clothing. We taught people when you sit at an event where to put your jacket so the logo on the back of the jacket gets seen the most. We gave everybody nicknames. You guys know Christopher Bennett. His nickname is High Gloss. He'll kill me for saying that out loud. But I gave him the nickname <laughs> in his group interview because he's High Gloss. We had sayings up on our company walls. We, we pushed out the press. Like We leveraged the media. Like We really understood how to, how to get the message out and attract people in. And I don't think any of that was bad. But we certainly ostracized people in a way if they didn't come to a company event. We certainly like, oh, that guy doesn't wear the blue wig enough. He doesn't wear the jacket. He didn't get the nickname. And I don't think anything was done on purpose. But I certainly look back now and say, wow, like if you were an introvert, you wouldn't have loved our culture as much. Mm -hmm. If you were just a good person doing a nine to five and you wanted to go home to your family and you didn't come out to to every like handing out blue wigs to cheer on the Canucks, you would have been ostracized. Mm -hmm. So those were all things that I look back at now. Well, there's some ways to think about it. And I believe when you watch someone like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, they're very extreme to most people and what it takes to be successful, yet they understand what it means to be successful, right? So they create an atmosphere and culture that most people who live in a mediocre realm or less than successful realm are going to look at and say, that's extreme, culty, or because they would never do that. So it sounds like there's a level of commitment and a culture you're trying to achieve and say, 
a sense of excellence, which is, I think it puts the exploration in a realm of capitalism versus cult. Because I think the essence of an entrepreneur wants to create that entrepreneur to ensure their success the same way a coach is like, you do the same thing every day at practice, you do it hard. And that's why a coach is there to push you to do it. And I didn't ever want to build an average company. You know, I wasn't striving to be average. Like there's, you know, it's interesting you keep mentioning sports because the assistant coach for the Vancouver Canucks, the hockey team, Mike Johnson at the time, he and I were trading ideas with each other on how to actually take culture into the organization. I was teaching him what we were doing in business for the Canucks and he was teaching me what they were doing with the Canucks to bring it into the business world. They totally crossed over. I was down visiting their offices. It was really trying to understand how to build that magnetic force into your company. And And I know that we didn't do anything wrong on purpose but I'm, I'm curious where companies do. That's where I think the conversation has room to be stretched in the thinking. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, so we have this paradigm that I think you can maybe make an argument has come really accepted in the capital capitalistic world. I had a conversation with a friend of mine about how they live in Europe and they actually live life in a way that's very different than entrepreneurs. And so- yeah. For me, it'd be what would make it bad and when does it go bad, right, Sarah? Wouldn't you? Yeah. It's interesting you bring up Europe, though, because I've worked with companies in 26 countries and they don't love the North American culture idea. I don't love it. No. (laughs) (laughs) I see that it works. You know, researching this episode and looking at other companies that, you know, have that kind of moniker like Apple, the cult of Apple which, mm-hmm. by the way, we had a former coach who was an Apple consultant with an Apple tattoo on their back. Two of our Got Junk employees, one of our employees, Jesse Corzan, had a permanent tattoo of the 1-800-GOT-JUNK logo. And then Nick Wood, one of our franchisees, had the logo permanently tattooed as well. And we thought it was a badge of honor. We're like, that's amazing. Look at these guys. Definitely extreme. And there's an article I read about how, like, okay, what specifically about it makes it culty. And I think that one of the things across the board with all our episodes, when we look at MLMs and now corporations, is what you're signing up for, what you're getting. Is there any dishonesty about when you commit to, say, working for something like Apple or any company, is it laid out for you of this is what it's going to be? And I think that's part of the thing that's, I don't know if it's just shitty or culty or whatever you want to call it. When you're signing up, what I think would be more ethical and not culty is to say, this is what's going to be expected of you. You're going to have to put your family and everything else other than work as a lower priority than Mm-hmm. working at Mac or whatever it is. But I think that's the, that's one of the things that's problematic is that it doesn't happen that way. Just like somebody who's groomed for sex trafficking, oftentimes that happens as they're signing up for a modeling class, you know, and you the know, person who's running the modeling class is planning on sex trafficking. I mean, don't tell them that. I learned a concept called the reverse sell. This is what I did when I hired Kimball Musk, Elon's brother back in 1993, was I told him how hard it was going to be for him to be a franchisee for College Pro Painters that he almost didn't believe me. And because I made the job sound so challenging and so brutal, but if you do it, you're going to have all these rewards. He's like, I need to do it. Sure enough, he did it. And he's like, fuck, this is really hard. And so, yeah, I I did that all the time. I told people how brutal it was going to be, but they still wanted it because we did a good job at making sure the magnet was strong. Right. So I think that's key into making it not. And I think one of the things that's problematic, I'm not close with, but in Vancouver, you know, you know, everyone I know knows him in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have been to his house. I was at his wife's birthday party where the Red Hot Chili Peppers played. Everyone knows in Vancouver, because that's where Lululemon was founded, that everyone in Lululemon takes Landmark. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's part of the, we know that now. I don't know if that was part of the it was upfront about like, if you're going to work for Lululemon, you have to take this personal development. And I want to just do a little 
section deviation caveat about personal development, because in my prep for this, I spoke to Yanya Lalich and Pat Ryan, two of our experts that we speak to about such things. Both of them said that one of the major problems they saw with, with corporate culture that are, that is culty is that there's this emphasis on these workshops. And I know that you coach and you teach workshops. I saw you at one of your videos at a whiteboard and was like super triggered because I just am so allergic to that stuff. Not to say that it's all bad, but like that's just where I'm at. You have a whiteboard, Sarah, so you're not. I even have a whiteboard, but it's just the whole vibe of it is just to me. But I know that you're you're a good person and we'll get to that in a minute. My, My point is, is that what's a problem with that is that things like Landmark and other training seminars brings up a lot of personal stuff. It's not appropriate in a workplace for your leaders, your boss or your managers or whatever to know about like your childhood wounds. Yeah. That's an area we never went. We would coach people on their personal development plan, on their goals, on their dreams. We never went anywhere on their past or on issues or on their psyche. We made everybody watch the movie The Vow a couple of times and we brought people from The Vow up to speak, like John Asheroff and John Martini didn't to speak, but Wait, we the just vow? thought that was like, yeah, not the, the Vow, I'm sorry, The, the Secret, the, the Secret. The Secret, I was going to say, this is yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah we, we made everybody watch the, the show The Secret. And we just mm-hmm. thought there was some powerful stuff there around quantum physics and quantum mechanics. But yeah, we never went anywhere weird with it, for sure. We certainly didn't yeah. have collateral on anybody except after a night out of drinking. I mean, right. Mostly they had collateral on me at that point. <laughs> Everyone's well, that's, doing that, that. That is a problem <laughs> yeah. in general, like blurred boundaries. And this is like, just to, as a caveat, we want to say for our listeners, again, we're not saying this company is a cult. And that's we want to give people tools to analyze things that they are in or have been part of and so they can decide for themselves if they want to continue, mm-hmm. you know, like, is this a healthy environment? Is this what I want to do or not? But we're gonna do a whole other series on the LGATs, on the large group awareness trainings. But the other main problem with workshops in general is that it's very broad stroke. It's very paint by numbers. And from what I understand with Landmark, there's a couple hundred people in a ballroom. You're all going through the same process that can be very deep and triggering and bring up trauma and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, if someone has had a bunch of trauma, they don't need, they can't be up on a stage talking about some personal thing, right? So there's a problem with the personal development component of what most of these culty companies insist on doing. If we're going to look at the red flags for people to analyze, that'd be a big one. Well, what I think I hear you saying is there needs to be an explicit ask and expectations are clear on the subjects or the people that you are trying to like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it as opposed to some subversive. Yeah. Like when we would have all of our employees wear corporate branded clothing and, you know, we would give them these fleece jackets that had the massive letters on the back. We knew we were getting advertising off of it, but we weren't forcing them to wear it. They were probably, you know, nudged and pushed to wear it. But we just saw that as great guerrilla marketing. Is that, is that culty? I think the question is what happens if you don't wear it? Do people get shunned or ostracized or like called out or teased? No, but the leadership team, we would have thought that you're more bought in if you wore it than if you didn't. So that's where I think there could be some gray area of, I want approval from my, my boss. accolades from my boss. I want them to, to see me as someone who's committed and a hard worker. If I don't wear this, are they going to think less of me? And that can be interpreted as a little... But it also might be true. You're not bought. Yeah. <laughs> like so. Well, there, there, there is a structure. Like in any company, there is an authority ranking structure, right? And that's the problem is that if somebody comes in and wants to please <laughs> and is willing to do things 
to like go up the ranks, that's on to a certain extent is on them. But it's also as a leader, they're specifically choosing people who are going to be obedient and fall in line. That's where the abuse of power comes from is like if someone's going to hire someone who they know they can manipulate so that they can have their needs met as the leader. I don't think a company would ever excel if that's who they were trying to hire either. See, there we go. You just don't do well. And if you're communicating as a leader that if you don't do this, this doesn't happen, a certain cancellation or they don't get to move up if they don't behave in a certain way. And also from the research I did, it seems like a lot of companies have a whole process around the enrollment, like the hiring process to begin with. Like there's things that you look for in a potential recruit right from the beginning. And just to like tie it into Nexium for a second, you know, we had the sashes, right? And in every training, there'd be at least one, if there's a 30 person training, one, maybe two people who'd be like, what, you want me to wear a sash? Usually somebody who was already very successful in their life, already an entrepreneur in their life. And they were like, fuck this. <laughs> or yeah. They'd grown up like Jehovah's Witness or they'd grown up in a, in a setting that was a sure. you know potential call and they saw the red flags. Either way, one of those people would say that and we would let them leave. Yep. And Keith would say, it's good that you got them out because they'd be a bad apple and that he'd call the sashes the guardian at the gates. And we thought it was because they couldn't pay tribute to what he had built because the sashes were like the ranking system of one's growth. If they weren't willing to call him Vanguard, it meant he was suppressive. Or it was another issue. Yeah, but my point being that now I see it as he's weeding out the non-compliance. He was weeding out somebody who wasn't going to go along with it and be like, you know, more malleable. We tell our stories. We change the world. A Little Bit Culty is proud to support the hashtag I Got Out Project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more about the hashtag I Got Out movement and find resources at igotout.org. I was taught back at College Pro Painters, and I carried this forward with virtually every brand that I've tried to build into these magnets. One of the traits you hire for is affiliation, people that want to be a part of a group. And those are people that were a part of their church group. They were a part of student council. They were a part of a team. They were in scouts or beavers or whatever, girl guides. And if you can get people that like to be a part of those groups, which was me all in <laughs> my whole yep, life, right? Like, like I said, I said to you at some point, Sarah, like if I had met you two, I would have been so deep into this, like, because it was so up my alley. Like I would have been chasing down the next green sash or whatever, like was above. <laughs> that's been, my, I was like the top cub, the top scout, like the top of student council, president of my fraternity. Fuck. It was like, bring it on. I wanted to be in all of it. And I didn't see any of that. But so I've, I've taught companies to recruit for that because right. if you hire people that want to be a part of a group, They'll wear your branded clothing. They'll come to your retreats. Yeah. They'll come to social hours. They'll be at the company picnics. And I don't see it. I, I didn't and don't see anything wrong with that unless you're doing it to the detriment of their family or. Right. I still think that's a good trait, isn't it? 
I would say absolutely. I have the trait too, so, so I think it's good. <laughs> there are downsides to it, so let's figure that out, right? You know, if you look at a great politician, they see the office as something that they serve and they become great mm-hmm. statesmen, right? And mm-hmm. it's for whatever it is that they're doing. The bad ones want the office for themselves and the office is to serve them. So I would ego. make a case that, yeah, I would make it, I mean, the narcissists and all those people, like sure. they have a front of this group that's all these things and he's serving it. But if you're truly a good leader, you recognize how you serve it and that company should be a reflection or take on the personality of a leader done right, right? So you're probably not imbuing it with any sort of abusiveness. Yeah, agreed. Because there has to be structures and hierarchies in society and systems in society that do serve the purpose that they're set up for. Like, I don't think what you're doing is bad. I don't think so either. I was just going to say like, what was bad for me, and this is like, I think slightly different for you, Cameron, because you didn't get into a cult. And I'm really glad I didn't meet you in 2010 because I absolutely would have recruited you. But, <laughs> or vice versa. But one of yeah. us would have recruited yeah, yeah, right. you. Yeah. But like, that desire, and I've had to do a lot of obviously self-reflection in my healing process, but my desire for community and my desire to belong and be a part of this thing blinded me. That's what I had to come to terms with. Because I was so bought into that whole thing, I was like, no, that can't be bad. No. Also, you were used. Yeah. But like, we're looking at the the whole dynamic of corporate culture. And I know you haven't seen it, Cameron, but there's this movie, The Circle with Emma Watson and Tom Hanks, which I think I saw when I was in Nexium. I'm pretty sure. We did. We didn't finish it though. We didn't finish it because I don't think, in my opinion, an excellent movie per se. But I remember thinking, she she joins this company that's kind of like Apple, you know, and she go, walks mm-hmm. in and it's like super tech and community and supportive and all these, like they, you know, they support her dad who's got MS and it's like your family now. And like, I was like, you know, that's, I can totally relate to her, right? Like I would be fully bought in and I've had experiences like when I walked into EA Electronic Arts here in Vancouver doing voiceover and motion capture and seeing like the cafeteria yeah. and like everyone's playing soccer at lunch and it's a vibe and it's like, this is fucking amazing. Been there. Right? Isn't an EA amazing? It's amazing. Right? And yeah. and also the Lululemon headquarters down in Kitsilano. Yeah. We took people for tours to their Burnaby location and we would have people come into the tours of our 1-800-GOT-JUNK location to show them what amazing was. Yeah. yeah. EA was, was spectacular. I've been, to the, I've been to the head offices of Google and Microsoft and I'll tell you, Google is a culture, mm-hmm. like our great culture. Microsoft's like a morgue. You walk through Microsoft, it's like there's no energy, there's no enthusiasm. It's like meh. And, and That's Google, why I don't, you don't use any leave. Microsoft product. <laughs> right? But Google yeah. decided culture was critical and Microsoft never had the discussion. Microsoft just always focused on product. And it's definitely bleh. It's for people who are bleh. Sorry for my friends who use Microsoft, but you are bleh. <laughs> Their offices are all single little offices. They're like little tombs or little little um, crematory, little, I don't know what crematoriums, <laughs> morgues, whatever the hell they are. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there are these tombs and a single person beige offices in these halls. And then you walk into Google and it's like open and there's energy and it's cool and it's fun and people, it's the same people. It's all computer engineers. Right. So I don't think culture, when people say, oh, it's the cult of Google. No, it's just a really fucking great company. But I think there is, I want to know where that line is, where they go too far. I think one of the lines is when your work life becomes the absolute priority to the detriment to your other values. And that's not what you planned on. And you get to the point where like you can't succeed in the company unless you make that change. Well, that's every lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> this is great. So wouldn't you say that excellence demands a certain amount of your time? Yeah. But if you were agreeing to that from the beginning, I think that's the part that's problematic. Like when you're saying I'm committing to this and I know that I'm putting it first above an, anything else forever. 
The caveat to that is, let's say Cameron hires us and he enrolls us into the vision, right? And then we start to recognize, I really want to do this. And I'm two years in, I recognize, you know what? I need to spend X amount of more hours a week because I really want to achieve this thing. But do you want to, or you feel like you have to? I don't know. Like are you coerced into it? Even as we're going and we're building what we're building, Sarah, we start to recognize, oh, I want to do this. That's going to require a little bit more time. We realize it takes more time when we decide that we're going to do it. There isn't somebody above us dangling something and abusing their power to extract something for us for their benefit. Okay. Employees can quit and go to another company though. It's much easier to quit a company and go somewhere else than it is to quit a cult. Yes. If you can't quit or if you feel like you can't quit or there's like some major downside. I've always had an issue with that. Like just quit. It's like, you know, I can't move. No, you can. Like you, you, you can just move. Well, there's, there's some sort of force or abuse of power that goes on and the other person doesn't know it. I'll share something that actually has divided families with company cultures. And it is similar to, I think, what happens inside of a cult, like with you and with Nexium. And it's all of the acronyms and the phrases that mean something inside of the company or inside of the cult. We had all of these things that we did and phrases that we used. And, you know, if I said that we had daily huddle near the garage and we were all wearing our blue wigs saying who does what by when and finishing with our huddle, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I think the spouses and friends felt like outsiders to the insiders of that culture, right? Like also if you feel better about yourself because you have that dialogue or that lingo, right? There's a righteousness. No, it wasn't a right. I was just, I was excited because everybody else was in these dead end jobs. And I always liked the companies I was building. I've always admired companies that had strong company cultures. Okay. So let me devil's advocate that. Let's say... I hate to keep bringing back to sports teams, but I think it's a good thing. When you go to a sports team, I'll give you an example. Strong, right? 82 cross shoot Z motion on A. That's a language (laughs) we all have when we get into a huddle (laughs) and then clap and then go run a play. And then we go home, take showers, and we go with our families and we don't even talk about, you know, strong, right? 82 cross shoot, right? And that's why football teams score more than soccer teams, because they all run around on the field without having a huddle. You need right. to have a huddle. You don't know what you're doing out there. And we had a huddle. You, you know that. You saw the huddle in our in the vow, right? We'd get together, put our arms around each yeah. other, and say, we are committed totally. to our success every day. So when does it become, like, you have a similar atmosphere, right? Yeah. Does it bleed into the personal life and then... You know, some people take their work home. Yes, for sure. But the good people would, or the people that want to excel in any company, I think, take their work right. home. Our daily huddle, you could go on YouTube and look at 1-800-GOT-JUNK-DAILY-HUDDLE. It's, in one, it's been written up in my books. We emulated what was done inside of football teams. We followed what Walmart would do with their daily huddles, which is kind of culty. We had a company cheer. We knew that we were raising the energy of people. We did it at 11 o'clock in the morning because it was the first period where people's energy dropped. So we wanted to give them a spike before lunch. Like it was all on purpose. I know that. Yes, true. <laughs> 11 o'clock is that witching hour. Yeah. And two o'clock's the next one. When we saw Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, have you seen that, Cameron? Not yet. No. Okay. And check it out. So- I don't know if that's culty or if that's just like fraud. Well, here's what I want to bring up. When they showed the corporate culture, it's both. When they showed the culture, it was like, oh my God, that's just like they had these like retreats and that was like Vanguard week. And, you know, there's the people coming up on the stage and like rah-rahing the audience and like, 
you know, getting everyone into it and like just the corporate, it sounds a little bit like what you described Google as. We had Brian at 1-800-GOT-JUNK rode into the Western Bay Shore for our annual conference riding on a real live camel that we brought the camel <laughs> in from Alberta. I swear to God, 2007, he rode into the Western Bay Shore riding a camel because we wanted to talk about the humps and the ups and downs of being a franchisee. Brilliant. But again, Brilliant. I, we just thought that was an amazing, fun right. stunt. Right. So go back to Theranos for a second. She was lying from the beginning. She yes. owned it yeah. in the things in the documentary saying, I'm doing fake it till you make it. Right. And that, and not like that's a major problem if the person at the top is presenting one thing and actually doing another. So that I think like all of those things that you've mentioned aren't problems in and of itself. It's like, are you doing it though for another purpose? Yeah. Like if Cameron's starting his business, and he has a culture that thinks they're in line with the vision and Cameron knows that's not true. There you go. Yeah, I've actually codified something. I have a registered trademark called Vivid Vision, which is a four or five page description of your company three years in the future. And we try to share that with all the employees, customers and suppliers. So everyone's bought into the future, into the dream of what we're building, excited about what we're building. That's kind of culty, right? But it's also powerful and it aligns people and it's amazing. I watched your TED talk about that. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty sure that Keith saw that TED talk and stole it because <laughs> he has this thing <laughs> called infinity goals, which is very similar to your vivid vision. And we were, we were always writing out our three year and five year in first person. Like I wake up, I do yoga on yeah. my balcony, overlooking the water. I have my raw food chef preparing breakfast my, while my children are getting tutored in Mandarin. I don't know. <laughs> so Cameron, you contributed to our curriculum. I can tell you where Keith learned it. Because he would have learned it from Edgar, because I taught it to Edgar in 2007. Originally, it was called A Painted Picture, and Edgar heard about it in 2007, 8, 9 from me. So he probably would have related if, if they got to Keith, that might be. Isn't this crazy? The interwovenness of Nexium and Cameron Harold. <laughs> what would you say now that you, like, you've been through this experience and you've watched The Vow? If people are in a corporation, what would you say are some of the red flags to look for from the beginning? with the steps along the way or the behaviors or attitude of the leadership or what, or whatnot? I think we're lucky now because we have platforms like Glassdoor and Indeed where we can actually read comments of prior employees and we can see what people mm -hmm. on the outside are saying, which we don't have with what you went through, right? You don't have mm -hmm. that platform, but you know, you can go on Indeed and read what all the former employees have been saying about that jerk of a leader, right? Or that, mm -hmm. that horrible company. I think that would be one place to go for sure. I never heard of it. So that's great. Yeah, I would for sure try to really understand what the, the company vacation policy and our policy is. You know, I've always given all my employees five weeks paid vacation and I make sure they use it. Like I push them to actually take the days off. But I think you want to make sure that you have that healthy balance. Okay, that's a good red yeah, flag that's good. to quantify. Yeah. So is there a place where you can air your grievances without being gaslit? It's tough, right? Because so, so often people, if the company gets bigger, they try to go to HR and then all of a sudden you've got politics creeping in because now yeah. you're talking to HR, you're not talking to me. But then people are worried to go talk to their boss because if they do, their boss has now got a black mark against them and that might not be good. So I think it's really tough in the corporate world, but I'm not sure that there's a way around that other than working for really good people who really care about you as humans and... And that's, I guess, why people, you know, what's the saying? People don't quit companies, they quit their boss. Mm. There's a fine line because I think one of the things that is problematic, if you, can, if you can't express a different opinion without being punished, like if conformity is the only option, then that's a, you know, that's a huge red flag. Like if you feel like you can't speak freely 
I think that's true of, sadly, of a lot of larger companies. My, my fiance used to work for Ticketmaster and was always talking about the politics, sadly, inside of the organization where senior leadership would never truly say what they felt because they were always having to try mm-hmm. to stick handle around all these other issues, which is I would die. I would get slaughtered in a corporate world. You know, I, I actually at one point I coached the CEO of Sprint who went, who went on. We talked about WeWork in the, the preview, but he went on to become the chairman of WeWork after the whole falling out of WeWork. I would have gotten destroyed at, at Sprint because I, I could never be a political person, right? I'm always mm-hmm. this entrepreneurial environment. But I think in a lot of companies, politics, once you get past 200 employees, I think politics is part of, sadly, part of the culture. It sucks. So having to be guarded around your boss, I think that sadly just happens. I wouldn't last long in that, yeah. There's, you know, there's great companies out there that don't have that. Yeah, I, I haven't done enough of a deep dive into to to WeWork. I know there, there there's a um a series about it, and people have asked for an episode on it. And Nippy had a membership here for a while that ended when COVID, COVID started. Hit. Yeah, and I love going there. They had kombucha on tap. It was such a dynamic place to work and share space with people. It, and again, it just seems like it came down to some problems with the leadership. Like I don't, I haven't done the the deep dive on that guy, but it's transparency, honesty, ethics at the helm is what's key. And I think in our case, when you have somebody who's claiming to be the most ethical, honorable man in the world, and is actually quite the opposite of that, anything can be made okay under that false premise. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to know that. Like, you know, if if we believe or project our, our honesty and, and good values and, and idealism onto the leaders, which I think is something that happens to understand, you know, projection. And, and we talked about that in, in our episode with Mark Vicente. If a leader knows that, it can always be flipped back if you are to express something that is, say, a concern or something negative. It can always be put on the person as that's just a projection. But the, the thing that, that I'd want our, our listeners to know is that we're always projecting. We, we never know what's actually, and this is something actually I learned in Nexium, ironically, but it's not from that. It's from like, you know, therapy and just basic psychology 101. You know, I could be looking at you right now, Cameron, and you're sitting back and I'm going, oh, he's interested. Or I could be, oh, he's bored or whatever. Like my projection is, I will never know. If you're projecting, if I'm saying something's not right here, or I have a concern about X, Y, and Z, the leadership can always say that's a projection. That's one form of gaslighting. Mm Or what did you say to me earlier, Nippy? This is something we heard all the time in Nexium. If I if I said like I'm kind of upset about something or like blah, 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 Nippy said, well, we have tools for that. In other words, you can work on that. Right, right. Like go work on that because your reaction is the problem, not the thing you're reacting to. I was asked the other day if if an employee wants to work on little side business projects of their own, should you allow them to do that? And mm-hmm. my quick answer was yes, because they're going to anyway. And if you don't allow them to do it, then they're having to lie to you. I think we have to actually let our employees run Mm. side businesses. We have to let our employees have normal lives. We have to understand that sometimes the reason they show up in the morning and they're not bought in or they're they're not seeming interested is because their spouse is fighting with them or they're Mm. having a problem with their kid or, you know, or they're struggling with depression. Like there's all this other shit, but I think leaders tend to force the company values or the company agenda first without thinking about the human. I think that's something to watch out for. Yeah. Right. Keyword force. If you're the kind of person like Cameron and I, that we like these groups and we like to excel in the groups (laughs) that that can potentially blind us to the perhaps not so altruistic intentions of the leader. That's one of my takeaways here with this. Yeah, it's it's interesting even in the franchising world, one of the areas that 
many franchisors are misaligned. I was lucky to work with two of the best where our franchisees also made a lot of money. But often cases, the franchisor is only trying to do two things, sell more franchises and get their franchisees to do a lot more in revenue because they make royalties off of that. But they're not focusing on helping the franchisee make profit. And they're driving the franchisees relationships, you know, avoid your family, work harder, work weekends, work nights, come to the company picnic, fly the flag, drive the the truck only for the sake of the franchisor. And I think it's dangerous too. And I think probably like as a tip to our listeners who are trying to figure out where they stand with a particular group or company or whatever is, have they actually done a thorough background check? Nippy was doing some classes with Grant Cardone for real estate. And then, and then like somebody pointed out that he's also a Scientologist, right? But he's not upfront about that. I bought the real estate book. Well, then I recognized every other purchase was, he was selling his sales pitches. He wasn't actually providing, it was purchase my sales pitch, my sales pitch, and where I can have gotten the same intel on YouTube. And then there's an aggressive follow-up phone calls from people. I heard that guy calling you asking to like sign up for something and, and, you know, once I've been in sale, I'm like, ew, bar for Rama. Like it was like all of his programs are leading you into the next program. And right mm-hmm. now his entire funnel is leading into all of his real estate developments. Everything's yeah. leading into participating in his real estate deals, max out your credit card, invest in real estate. It's really scary. It's I've shared the stage with him three times at major conferences where we've both spoken at the conferences. It's horrifyingly scary. He also shames you for not doing it. Yeah. He's like, where are you going to put your money? Here, here, here. He's like, boom, boom. And he tells you why they're all bad. Yeah. He doesn't deliver a lot of content on the stage. He does. Great, great business guy, but dangerous. Yeah. I think. And look, the book that I bought, which is like 199 or whatever it was with like, you know, it wasn't much great beginners kind of like content on real estate and, and the ecosystem and stuff like that. But then I felt like anything past that was the same thing that I just did. <laughs> so it had the same feel. Yeah. He's also teaching that you don't really have the skills to do real estate, but if you put your money into his real estate deals, then you'll do well. Hey, culty listeners, lovers of cult busting content, ALB seers, culty kids. Hmm. We've gotten a lot of requests to put up a link where people can throw some funds up behind the podcast and help support what a little bit culty is doing. And you know what? That's a great idea. Thank you for that. And as we've gotten to know other podcasters and learn more about this whole podcast thing, we've been learning that it takes a whole lot of different resources and different sources of revenue and listener support to keep it rolling. Sponsorships and ads and the occasional appeal to Amazeballs listeners like you. That's why we added a way for anyone who wants to support the show to do exactly that. You can go to a littlebitculty.com slash support or the link in our Instagram bio, or smash that link in our show notes to make a one-time contribution or a recurring one. We will pay your support forward with a galactic level of love and light and healing resources, of course. Again, it's a littlebitculty.com slash support or check out the link in our Instagram bios. Next up, we really got to figure out what to call you, our listenership, ALBC Nation, Flying Monkeys. We're going to have to workshop that. Thanks, guys. That's the thing. There's a trick. There's always a bait and switch. Yeah, you're just buying my book. And at the end of the book, you're going to want to do more. It's the same thing that I've seen with Landmark. And again, we'll do a deeper dive. But it's like you're just taking this three-day weekend workshop. And in the end, if you really want to grow, you're going to do the next one. 
and the next one and the next one. Because I would love to do that inner work. I would love to do that personal development. I'm terrified that I would get sucked into the next and the next and the next. You know what somebody said to us when we left? It's like, it's one thing to, to take a workshop like that and use the tools in your life. When the tools become your life yeah. is the problem. And that's mm-hmm. what I see like you know, with all of these things, especially the large group awareness trainings or the seminars. And we've talked a lot about this in our last two seasons is, you know, what's 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 the hook and, and what is what does it actually end up being? And if it is a lifelong program, something you can never gra- you could never graduate from Nexium. There is always another sash. Mm-hmm. Is that why all these groups are pointing to the one or two people who are uber successful in their their real life? And, and there's, you know, like. Christian science must be good because Tom Cruise is a member or mm-hmm. Hank Cardone is a member. Mm-hmm. I think so. They, they did that with me too. Like look at Sarah. She used to be an out of, you know, living in a basement suite, aspiring actress. And now she's making six figures and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sarah can do it. Anyone can do it. We always did it with our franchisees. You know, I was one of the franchisees that they pointed to at College Pro Painters having been so successful. My sister was was super successful. And and at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we pointed to, strangely enough, our number one franchisee was a former College Pro Painters person that I brought into 1-800-GOT-JUNK who became the biggest franchisee. But I was, I was always pointing to them as role models and leaders. Not that you couldn't get there because now we've probably got 50 franchisees that are doing what all used to do when I was pointing to them. Well, you weren't lying. You weren't lying. <laughs> no. there, you can right. get there. But there was a yeah. bit of the fake it till you make it. I didn't know. I, I was pretty sure that we could get, but we didn't have anybody else there except him. So mm-hmm. I was pretty sure I could get people there, but I didn't know for sure. But I felt like if they followed all these systems they, and they did, some, some, most did, I guess, but you don't, you don't always know. Well, I think in our situation, they knew for sure that you probably weren't going to be able to do it based on diagnostics. Wouldn't you say, Sarah? Like, Yeah, because even Keith even said that in MLMs, in, in multi-level marketing pyramid schemes, whatever, the average person can bring in 2.6 people, right, to to anything, the average. That's the number in sales. And like in Nexium, to be a salesperson, which is where you could actually make money, you had to bring in six people within six months. So there's a time frame, And if you went past that, like if you only got five in six months, at six months, you started again. So it's like, it was very, very difficult. There was a handful of us that were salespeople, a particular yep. kind of person. That, and I happen to be one of those people, unfortunately. Not a skill that I'm proud of in this context, but it is a skill. And maybe one day you will convince so me I to, come, to hire you. <laughs> come work for your, your team. No. Maybe. I think your podcast is doing too well now. I think you're well. We'll see. I, I like to multitask. You're doing great. You never know. Oh yeah, but like, and this is in my book too, Cameron, where Keith admitted to me that it was all about creating the illusion of hope. Mm. Right, my last conversation with him. I don't imagine you saying that, Cameron. <laughs> yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. And I did actually listen to your audio book. It was fantastic. It was oh, really thanks. strong. The vow scared me to wonder if we'd ever cross the line, and I don't think we ever did. I think the danger is that it could cross. Companies could become either out of greed or out of fear, you know, where the CEO is desperate because they have everything on the line or that you could cross the line. You could go too far with culture. We've had a few guests who are in positions of power. And I've listened to a couple people that I know because of what's going on politically, they've stood up for certain things. And as a, as a result of standing up for certain things, they've accumulated an audience that kind of follows them, reads their articles now. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to them and consistently through a lot of them, they are all sensitive to the newfound power that they have. And what do you do when you realize what's your responsibility when you realize you have 
an influence over someone that you don't necessarily want or quite understand, and you're going to have a learning curve. Let's say, for instance, you're in a position and and someone really likes your seminar and they are willing to compromise maybe themselves, their time or whatever to get your attention. And you see that, what's your responsibility? Does that make sense? And was it Natty Boltz Weber was talking about even how she looked at someone can be misinterpreted. It happened and happens for sure. I think the fact that you're having the conversations and these people are having these conversations is an indication of you're not the kind of person that wants to abuse or, or is interested in abusing that position. No, but not at all. But I am definitely the kind of person that still believes that a great company culture from the outside, people might say it's a cult. And from the, from the inside, I, th- I think we have to be careful. That's a good segue to your cult thing, Sarah. What's the bad thing? We were taught in our first five day that people are going to say that we're in a cult. And we were armed with the response, which is that when someone's accusing something of somebody, you say what it is. Like if they're killing people, they're murderers. If they're stealing, then they're thieves. But saying it's a cult is just saying there's sort of this wash of it's bad without actually saying what the bad thing is. And so we were like, what's bad but what we're doing? We're wearing sashes. We're happy. We take right. long walks in the neighborhood and the neighbors don't like that. Like, okay, it's a culture. It's a culture. Yeah, we play volleyball at night. We don't sit and watch reality TV. Yeah. Like I'm in a cult. Great. It's a cult of happy, successful people. And I fucking love my cult. That was my response. Nippy, I feel like normally we do word salad in the outro, but I feel like that you should share your word salad with Cameron because it's a good segue. prickly little word, which begs the question, what is a cult? Does that imply something is bad? Is it always bad? If you murder someone, you call them a murderer, do you not? When you call something a cult, you call them that because you cannot specify the bad thing. If a group of people get together with a common vision and we call them a cult, in essence, we hurt culture and ultimately we hurt society, man's creation. (laughs) That's strong word salad, man. That's a thousand islands. (laughs) It is. Such the kind of shit that Keith would say. And it, like, I think I even said this in our first episode with Stephen Hassan. I said that about an acting group that I was a part of, and we are going to do a full episode on this group at some point. But I even said it like before I did Nexium. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't take that program anymore. It's kind of a cult. And then afterwards, it's like, wow, I, I shouldn't do that. Like, that's not a good. I sh- and then I started to say things like it's very insular. It pushes the boundaries. Like once you're in it, you feel very righteous. There's kind of like this us versus them. Anyone who's not like little did I know I was nailing the checklist of what actually constitutes a cult, but I wasn't using the word cult anymore because I didn't think it was good. Like Keith basically programmed us. Gaslit you. Gaslit us Mm -hmm. to not use the word because of the connotations, which is smart if we know the connotations. (laughs) Well, it armed us with a good defense. And it was a good defense. If it was true that we were a humanitarian group trying to do all the idealistic things we thought we were trying to do, and Keith was who he said he was, then that would be true. But the fact is, is that it wasn't true. And it was a defense strategy. It was a deflection. May have been the intention in the first couple of years, but he sure went off the rails afterwards. No, no. He planned this from the beginning. We have lots of data to prove that now. Yeah. One of the things Sarah and I were talking about, are these things conscious or unconscious? And I think with, with Keith and Keith's case, it, it was it was totally a conscious thing. It was very well planned out. Yeah. There are leaders of other groups that we've explored who I really do think had good intentions at the beginning and then the power got to their head or like women being thrown at them. It, you know, it's going to have a, have an effect if you're not a strong, grounded person. That That's very different than a sociopath who's planning out how they're going to screw people out of their money and have a fresh supply of, you know what, 
I think that'd be very true inside of a company as well, because I think that the vast majority of leaders that use company culture to build a great company, that's what they want to do. But mm-hmm. it is that sliver that, that they're cognizant that they're using it and abusing it for sure. Right. Yes. That's a great note to end on. I look forward to meeting up. Anytime. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.